everyone. Welcome to Coach Out Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and here's what we've got lined up for you this week. You said it's it's never about the result, and I think it's the biggest one that I got out of, I guess, those two years for me was recognising the power of silence sometimes. And you do, and it's tough, isn't it? You know, it's not, it's not kid ourselves. There's times when you did, you did want to, you know, really bollock them and go yeah. in on them, and you do have to, I guess, as a coach and as a person, you have to kind of just squash your own ego or stick it in your back pocket. And it might be that they freeze because the environment's different. That all of a sudden they're seeing full-time first-team staff there, and psychologically, so, so, uh, socially, they might not be ready because they're quite, might be quite introverted. In this episode, we sat down face to face with Noel Dempsey. Noel possesses years of experience on the theoretical side and the practical side of coaching in football and combines both sides really well. In this episode, we we reflect on our time together working in the YDP phase at the previous club, giving anecdotes about how we work with individuals and teams within the academy setting. Right. Hi, Noel. Cheers for joining on the Coach Your Podcast. Really good to have you on. Um, again, know you pretty well, don't we? But uh, just for the, the listeners, give us a, a bit of a rundown in terms of what you've done coaching-wise, where you're at at the minute. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's been nice to catch up already. <laughs> Free podcast. But yeah, no, um, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, no, my name's obviously Noel Dempsey. Um, coaching-wise, I guess my background since coming up to Manchester, uh, kind of almost 10 years ago now, makes me feel really old, um, is I I worked, originally got a role at Rochdale as a, uh, a YDP coach in the younger age groups, um, which was a great experience, uh, and then from there, that's obviously where, where we met when, when I arrived at, at Burnley, and obviously we spent a couple of seasons together uh, with the 15s and the 16s, which was, which was obviously a great experience, learned a lot from you. Um, since then, uh, I spent some time uh, working for the FA as a kind of coach developer and uh, coach mentor and then more recently now for the last few years I've been uh, at Man City within their selects program which is just their uh, I say just it's their kind of development centre yeah. for um, yeah an internal development centre where we work with the, with the academy so uh, I really enjoy it uh, obviously it was disrupted slightly with Covid but uh, is working with some really really good lads and we'll see the challenge to either get them in at, at City which is becoming ever ever more difficult or, yeah, I can imagine. or getting them getting them elsewhere which is you know has been fairly positive. Um so yeah that's that's where I'm up to in terms of the, the coaching. No good you you obviously you're in the academic side as well aren't you a little bit yeah <laughs> yeah a little bit um obviously I, I work at UCFB uh, as my full time role as a, as a lecturer within kind of uh, football coaching and management and, and across football coaching and talent ID, um, which, I, which I really love. UCFB is a really, a really good place to be. Uh, and yeah, I'm at the very, I guess, back end of my, my PhD, um, which is probably taken far longer than what it should. Um, it's focused around kind of coaching and coach education more, more specifically. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're really enjoying that. Yeah, and no, like I said, I think we had that kind of link around YDP um, yeah. at Burnley, which again, I think it's, it's something I want to kind of tackle in this podcast with you and talk about almost that top end of YDP from 15, 16, preparing them for like the PDP phase. Um, so again, like in terms of your 
you as a coach, is this something you really enjoyed working at that end or did you kind of fall into it? What? Um, I think my, my original experience was obviously working across, um, I guess pre, pre-Manchester, was working with a range of uh, kids kind of from kind of 14 all the way up to 19. So I always had that in mind alongside kind of me being a, a kind of college teacher. So you typically 16 to 19 year olds. So I've always been quite associated yeah. with, um, you know, that type of age groups. I, I think it really kind of stuck out when I arrived at Burnley and obviously you, you, you were there um, where there was a real need and drive to develop these, these, young, these young boys and obviously developing, developing into, into young men. Um, it's something that I found a real challenge if I'm honest and obviously I learned a lot from, from yourself um, you know every week going in was, was a challenge um, yeah. in terms of who we were working with and what we were trying to create and who we were trying to create in, in the club's image which was I'm sure we'll get into and was, a, was an interesting caveat yeah so like in terms of again it doesn't have to marry up with, with like the Burnley philosophy or the Rockville yeah. but what are your kind of beliefs and thoughts around what it should look like at 15 or 16 to kind of prepare kids for that full-time environment when they leave school? Yeah, it's really tough, isn't it? Because I think more broadly, I see these these, these human beings, they're, they're young you know, boys turning into young men that need to be treated as such. Uh, I think the difficulty is getting them to continue to, to enjoy what it is they do knowing full well that we're prepping them for quite a serious end of the game which is really in some ways really crap to say I'm sorry to <laughs> say that yeah, no, because I mean. you know I, I'm very much you know in the camp of football is a very late developer sport you can play it until you know, you've only got to look at you know the top end of Lionel Messi Cristiano Ronaldo who are in their late 30s or mid, mid to late 30s so you know do they have to be this polished article at 15, 16, do they have to be prepped and ready for first team by 18? Uh, the, the more I kind of read, the more I absorb, I think, no. But there is so much pressure on academies and you've got to empathise with, you know, full-time staff, academy managers, you know, sporting directors because, you know, their livelihoods depend on that. So, yeah, I found that a real challenge in terms of conflicting views at times and obviously we experienced that and certainly I did. Um, at, at Burnley um, in terms of what we're trying to give them I think we're trying to get them to understand a little bit more about who they are as people and where their strengths lie in terms of who they are as a person and what they bring to the game in that sense yeah. um, we were very fortunate to have I guess characters who were quite strong um, yeah. mentally who looked after one another that could communicate with one another really well and it was it was probably really inspiring to watch lads of that age you know 14 15 16 year olds who could carry that because yeah. you know in society now there's not many people that could do that in their late teens and early 20s so it was a real privilege to watch those that group especially do that um and i think that's probably the biggest part of the game you know typically when you're at an academy you're technically there more often than not it's a slight tweaks. Very rare is it fundamental problems. The tactical side of the game, I think they they still need to be quite reliant on the coach, and I think that's fine because you know the game's getting ever more complex. Although people try and simplify it with all these different styles and approaches and tactics, you know I think that has to come with the experience. 
but in terms of what I look for in those 15s and 16s is what are you like as human beings? What characteristics are you developing that's going to turn you into a, a strong, resilient young man that's going to enable you to kind of feed into what becomes, you know, a challenge with people who are earning their livelihoods. And that's a real big step. Um, do you think you, like, inherited them players or do you think, and again, it's not to, like, make you, like, blow smoke up yourself, but... Mm-mm. Do you think you inherited them players or do you think you harnessed and like, enhanced that through the time they had with you? Uh, I'll be perfectly honest, I think you was the main instigator of that group across the two years. I yeah. think you, you've got to take massive credit for that and I think I've always said that you know, to your face and, and behind your back <laughs> that you, you, you instilled things in those kids that had nothing to do with football and I learned a lot from that. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I guess at the same time, obviously I was at at Bolton Wanderers as well, um, looking after the, the education of scholars. So I kind of saw it a, a phase up yeah. of what it looked like from a full-time scholar perspective. And that obviously led me to be quite passionate about developing people um, in order to develop these players. And obviously I wrote a, a book on it. Yeah. Um, and I feel very passionate about that, that getting people to see beyond the pitch on what they can do for themselves to improve what goes on on the pitch is incredibly important. And I think when I stepped into Burnley, um, the 16s group were obviously a group that were, it was quite difficult because things had already happened, but that 14s and 15s group that were coming up, that for us over those next kind of two years were, were I guess, the, I don't know, should we say golden group? I guess, I don't know. They had some really good, strong yeah, players I think, in. I think people talk about them in terms of ability. Mm. And again, obviously some have gone on and done, done really well, but... Again, I can't. I I look back at it myself, and I can't come away from the fact of like, as a group of lads and a group of individuals and a group of like I used to keep saying like human beings, I couldn't fault the things that probably. I was probably inexperienced at the time in terms of we talk about like the decisions and players went different places, and that that's probably where I've understood as a as I've got older, it's, like it's almost like a managing up process of how to get players on to the next level. It's not always the best players get up or the ones that are doing well. It's it's how you manage them, people. And again, it's something I personally, my day-to-day job, I feel like I've got better at, but it's still something where it's people call it like playing the game at times, but it's there's a, there's a fine balance of, of doing that. But I also, I always go back to there was a game... And again, the, the, the kind of golden group we're talking about that were under 16s at the time, and I spoke about it previously a couple of things, people is that group at 16s were like dominating category three football in terms of beating everyone, and but they'd done it from like the under 10s all the way through, and like the core of it was still together. And again, I know it's not about results, but in terms of performances, they were unbelievable. And I always remember about three or four months into the season, we played Preston in a friendly. No, sorry, not a friend, like in one of your academy games on a Sunday. Got beat 7-0. Yeah, I was there, it was at UCLAN, wasn't it? it was and the, uh, I was there. I remember, I always remember, I walked back to changing rooms and one of the parents, kind of, because you've got to like, walk past all the parents to change rooms. One of the parents was like, oh, I hope you're going to give them like, a roast and change after the game and all this. And I'm walking up like, that little stairs in the in the change rooms and it's like the top door at the back and I'm walking, thinking, what am I going to say here? And I walked in and the room was silent, and you had like big characters in there. Yeah. And I thought I kind of took up a second. I thought, do you know what? 
other groups I've had in the past and other groups I've had since would be like game's done let's mess around blah. and you could tell it had hurt them and I said I remember saying to them I said literally like one sentence I went lads I love the fact that like, this has hurt you the next step for you and I'm not saying they should have done this at 16 but I said the next step in full time environment there should be potentially you guys sorting this out in the changes whether that's shouting at each other fight scuffle whatever because then it, then it does really mean something to you and never forget like I went back train on Tuesday night like 7.30 both up in the snow and yeah. the plays were unbelievable that night there was it never got mentioned again that game whereas I think and again that's why I probably asked the question around it was probably something instinctively I did but like I think we kind of harnessed it a bit in terms of we we allowed other coaches the ego would have kicked in it's like I've got to destroy this group after the game and tell them this this and this but they didn't need it. Other groups might have needed it, but this group had like, and actually, you look at them now, there's probably six playing professionally, two in America, and they all play at a good level. They've all, got, they've all found the way into, into first teams. They've gone to clubs and not been in the, in the first team straight away, and now they're, now they're playing. You think it's, it's a real kind of interesting path that they took? Yeah, and like you said, it's it's never about the result and I think it's the biggest one that I got out of I guess those two years for me was recognising the power of silence sometimes and you do and it's tough isn't it you know, it's not it's not kid ourselves there's times when you did you did want to you know really bollock them and go yeah. in on them and you do have to I guess as a coach and as a person you have to kind of just squash your own ego or stick it in your back pocket and let it all out on the phone call home, <laughs> which, you know, we've had those as well. We've had those phone calls all the way home and because they won't, might not need it at that time because these aren't 10-year-olds. These are 50, 15, 16-year-olds who have got a bit about them, which, again, you know, you look at the academy system now, there's, there's a lot of lads that have a bit about them and do we do enough to allow that to come out? Are we too robotic sometimes? Are we expecting a perfect model because academies model it on what the first team should be? when actually there was probably quite a few mavericks in that group that would sit outside the traditional academic model, um, academy model, sorry, of what that was at the time. Mm. And I think they flourished. And they flourished because, like you say, you didn't always bollock them. And you could leave them. As you said, that Tuesday didn't need a, listen, we need to do this, we need to fix it. They fixed it themselves. Yeah. And that doesn't just come off of one result. It doesn't come off one game. That takes time. So when you talk about this YDP phase and how it differentiates across those four years, it's important to give them that ownership while being very nurturing, while looking after them, while giving them the feedback collectively, unit-wise, individually, that you hope culminates in a few coming out and going, don't worry, Gaffer, we got this. Don't worry, Coach, don't, we got this, don't worry. And I think because that's what the game needs, you know, we're, we're so, I always say, we're so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, certainly on match day, because it's all on them, you know, we should get our deck chairs out and just have a good time, <laughs> you know what I mean, and you just make the odd notes where it is. It's a great way to put it, because again, other, other sports do it really well. Yeah. Again, I watched the rugby the other day, and I think, like, Eddie Jones is sat in the crowd, and you think, wow, that's... There must be so many things going through his head, but then again, he's if you planned and you prepped 
because it might happen. That's, that's another yeah, thing, probably going around to the coaching side. Yeah, and I think a lot of academies now, uh, you know, the, the development of the EPPP and I guess the evolution of the EPPP has meant that there is always be there is always consistency within traditional academy football now. So most players, after they've been in the system for a year or so, typically know how they're expected to play, what their roles and responsibilities are typically. You know, if they're finding a couple of positions, they'll need to develop that. And I think that should give us license as coaches to, I guess, stand back more, yeah. relinquish that control more, and be comfortable if things don't always work out as quickly as maybe you think they should. Um, well, again, it goes back to your early point in terms of you talking around late specialisation. Yeah. I know you said like there's a there's a point at eighteen to twenty four, twenty five where someone's got to make a decision on these players. You can't just keep them to twenty five, but it does really kind of look at like a gap in the system sometimes where you go, well, we miss out on a lot. Yeah, I mean, in, listen, let's 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 say how it is as well. Not every player in academy football is destined to play first team at whatever level it is. They're not all destined to play Premier League. Some are destined, excuse me, to play Championship. Some are destined to play League One, League Two. Some are destined to play abroad. And there, there is scope. It's a global game, as you said. A couple of the, the group are over in the states playing at a good level. Maybe that's their level. Fine. But, you know, who are we to dictate at such a young age that it can no longer be? And, I guess I'm sounding very anti academy having been in it but I'm, I'm very much like you know I guess the, the influx and the integration of this new player care thing I think it should be part of that that look we care about what you want to invest in you but we want you to find out who you are as a person who you are as a human being how we can support that it doesn't mean that we remove this to disappointment because not everybody's going to be a pro player you know I wasn't I certainly wasn't <laughs> you, you, you got there just kind of, kind of yeah. just right. but again, but again it's interesting because as you talk I'm, I'm thinking in my head about the two groups we had mm. and obviously the older group was like the golden group in terms of ability yeah. and there was always kind of a, people kind of looked over oh, the group below your group as not the run probably like the wrong way but they were almost mm-hmm. like these lot aren't ready but then I'm, I'm actually picking them off in my head now and there's probably five or six where I'm going pro contracts, played pro, yeah. played in League Two, played in the FA Cup this year, yeah. played in Sweden, yeah. played in America. I'm going, do you know what, like, over the two years, and it's mad because there's lads playing that golden group that haven't, yeah. but I wouldn't say like falling off the edge of a cliff in terms of as a person, they're doing something with education work, like, it's, it's, it's really interesting when you actually start picking the two groups apart. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's, and that's where it is, I think, your last point around that, you know, beyond that group as footballers, actually, they're doing all right as people, you know, they're cracking on. And whether they're in just normal full-time jobs and they're playing part-time or they're squash playing, but they're doing really well in, in terms of their, not, their, you know, they've got a missus or they've gone out and got a really good job or they've done travel, whatever it might be, within themselves, they are probably more, I guess, well-rounded human beings. And that's not just because of what happened in those two years. They've got really supportive parents, you know, the groups of parents were in that. And that shows the importance of this, I guess, this more, this uh, wider system that's at yeah. play. That but we've then, got to value that. But then take you back to kind of coaching, where obviously we're talking about like the YDP and the top end of it. Yeah. Like, no, but the 
so you got obviously like you got your traditional kind of four corners. Mm. What would you say as a coach you probably tackled most out of them four corners when you were coaching? Um, I think well the caveat is obviously the four corners are never in isolation. They they all yeah. impact on one another. It's a very integrated system. I think the the use of the four corner as a um, as a visual allows us to recognise them, but they, they all interchange. One has an impact on the other. I think something that I, I would be honest, and I, I alluded to it earlier, something that I probably didn't value as much that I learnt massively at, at Burnley was probably the more social side, which I think you've done brilliantly. And I think that lent itself to some form of you know, real psychological development in certain areas, you know, confidence, that togetherness as a group, as they were, as well as they recognised and built their own self-esteem, their own identity of who they were, as players as well as people and it's certainly something that now when I'm at City and you know we've got this challenge of look who can we get in trialling or who can go to other clubs and give a really good account yeah. of themselves it's something that I, I pay, pay real attention to uh, and that comes in the development of practice design so when we look at the four corner one terms tactical how I look at how I want them to develop as people and what I want them to do from a, a social perspective in terms of not just the traditional communicate which we often always write at the top, right? Yeah. I'm talking about actually, do you understand what it means to be in a in a really positive relationship with your teammate or teammates? Do you know what it means to, in terms to, to care for someone, to empathise with someone? Do you know what it means that if a player is struggling in that game, that you recognise that you're not berating them, that actually you might need an arm around them? Um, and what will that do for them? But also, what does it do for you as a person? Well, psychologically, so, sociologically, it develops leadership qualities. It develops empathy. It develops emotional intelligence well that has an impact on how you operate in terms of the technical and tactical elements of the game or well, are you looking at players in the right way are you scanning in the right way are you picking up positions in the right way it all has this stuff and I think that's probably what I have a greater appreciation of now across these four corners that then influence I guess as coach the practice design of how we approach scenario based work and very much game based now whereas traditionally and again this is my own yeah. limitations of my own biography old school running 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 and there were still times at Burnley I was like just run them just run them and yeah. that was my shortcomings that wasn't theirs and I, and I think when I when I look at that now if, if we can coming out of the uh, more global pandemic where we recognise that kids have not being able to maintain relationships with their friends or not got to know more people than maybe what they would have because they haven't been able to go out to the environments. The social side is really, really important in in football as it is in their day-to-day of schooling in terms of their parent being with their parents and their wider family. But within that social corner, it goes beyond just that communication. And I think once you get them to value recognising little cues about have you said hello? Have you said how are you? Something as simple as that. How are you really? Are you okay? You know, and not do it to me, but do it to your teammate. And I think that's when you're going, you're recognising the pitch. It's when you'll find, start building relationships with one another on the pitch. It's where you'll find that you'll combine brilliantly on the pitch. It's where you then get that, what I, I always associate with, you know, you get that kind of uh, telepathic thing of, I know where you're going to be. Well, why? Because you get on. And actually, you're with one another. You drink together. You break, your breaks are together, and that's what I, I felt during those two years. That group really had, and the amount of times we used to marvel right at some of the play, and you're just like, we didn't do any of that. <laughs> yeah, but they need like when you talk now on the flip side, like you could have conversations with them. 
Yeah. So lads would come over and go, how are you today? Yeah. How are you today? And all like, and I can think of people off the, like, off the top of head, nearly like the whole the whole squad in terms of the interaction you had with them. Yeah. And again, like going back to that, that communication, I think there's, we always talk about, it seems to be like the first thing that comes up when you talk psych, social, psych communication, but I'm thinking also like, again, going back to that 15, 16 and, the start you go through the phase and it's now like learning to win, training to win, learning to compete kind of stuff. Like, I think that's something we worked on pretty well in terms of we made it competitive, but there's still learning by, but I think, I think like even for like coaches listening, I think there's a real good way of developing competitiveness even in like a, a player staying behind doing his own individual stuff. So how do you score it? Um, and I think we created that really quickly, which again I think people shy away from. So stupid it sounds like I talk. We talk about these two groups again, which a lot of people won't know. But the older group would play the younger group, and it'd be like eight nil after ten minutes. But that was the case of we created like, like they can't be better than than you in terms of you got to be a pecking order. Whereas in a lot of academies, the younger group sometimes will beat the older group, yeah. which. If you to think logically, it shouldn't it shouldn't really happen. So it's almost like a their competitive things like we've got to keep these down here, and then kind of strive for strive for the top end. Yeah, and I think within that, between the two groups, they were fairly competitive anyway because mm. they, as groups themselves, they were quite competitive. So that always helped us, which you don't always get in in academy systems. But I also think within each of the groups, they were very competitive within, um, not just between. And, and I think that was because, again, it was that thing of, yeah, we're getting to know, but actually, yeah, we're training to win now. Like, let's make no mistake about it. You're expected to go out and win games. And I don't think winning should be seen as this dirty word, even in development football. Yeah. You know, winning breeds winners. It's not to say that losing won't have its lessons. It does. You know, we've seen it at the very elite. You've seen it in documentaries. You look at the Last Dance, for example, that traditional yeah. one that during COVID everyone went to. But make no mistake about it, someone like Michael Jordan, he wanted to win and he trained to win. And even when he won, he wanted to win again. And it's a it's breeding that psychological thing of we're going to become winners. It's that mentality, and I think it's it's recognizing that you've got to value the win in order to stay competitive, to stay ahead, to want to stay ahead. While at the same time, not as you, you know, we, we had that, that game. And I, I never forget it. You stood there. I was, we was almost bemused at what was going on against Preston. Yeah. yeah. Really? Is this the same group? Yeah. And we were, and, but it, it, it took that almost as a reset button. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Yeah. And as long as the players recognise, look, just letting you know, that's your place at the moment. Don't think you're here. Don't think you're way up here. They just put you right back where you should be. What well, that, that, was, that was my biggest thing. Is going, going into another job, I worked as an 18s league coach, and yeah. we went on a run of like 20 games undefeated. Yeah. And the hardest thing I found of that period was what's my half time team talk going to look like? Because yeah. I wanted it to be, I always had this thing in my head that I took it from Guardiola, it always kind of stuck with me, which was when you lose, manage them psychologi- psychologically. When you win a game, though, it's a perfect time to coach them and get more out of them. Yeah. And it kind of stuck me. It might sound really logical to people, but I had that in my head, and I was like, right, at half time, right, I've I've got to like almost 
group this group again they might be slowing up but it's like how do we keep that kind of because yeah. again it's, you're always selling the, the end goal about well, you're not professional football you're 17 you win the game against Shrewsbury or Walford or whatever so like how do we keep this kind of group going and going and going I say I always looking back at it like I've the, the two of the, the big the most kind of recognisable things in my head around learning was spoke about it previously like obviously that game the 7-0 game against Preston but then as a coach again I lost some of a winning position in a youth cup where I got it wrong yeah. and I've learnt more from that than any any game that we ever we ever won yeah. Um, but yeah like in terms of on the pitch then what kind of things would you use to kind of promote these things at 15 and 16 and make it competitive because I know you were very like a bullish kind of coach as well in terms of how you were anyway mm-hmm. but was there any things underneath that in terms of interventions or coaching methods that you used yeah I mean my, my one was obviously yeah I was I, I had no no qualms about getting stuck into into players yeah. and being quite probably to, to a detriment to some of them and this is where I've, I've reflected very command style based at times yeah. and then on the flip side I could be I could be silent for an hour um I think what I've learned over time being on the pitch is the importance of getting to know the person because you then tailor your intervention, which I'm guessing isn't new to a lot of these listeners, is that you, what I value most now is how you tailor your intervention to the individual players that you're with. But again, there's the tailored interventions, and again, this is, this is something that's massive, but we've got, oh, we want to do this intervention with this player tonight. Yeah. And we do it for we give them like you've got to do this in the session. Yeah. But then I'm I've learned all especially the older the players and to fair even like foundation phase players are the same because they they're so clever. Yeah. Is if you're not on them with that intervention for the full session or for six months of work or six weeks of work, they don't see the value in it. No. So if you're not constantly going and reviewing it, so an example is like I worked with a fourteens girl in an RTC this year yeah. and it was. She, she plays in games and the staff were like, oh, she doesn't affect the game. Technically really good, typical, 40 doesn't affect the game. And I'm like, um, and I'm like plugging a blog here, which I wrote recently, which was like, how do you find a good performance in the kind of football? Where it was like, what did David Silver's number 10 look like at 14 and at 12? He wasn't 100% pass completion and sliding ball through every time and scoring 30 yards. Yeah. So I kind of used this, this method with this girl. I was like, well, what can what one thing can I, I tell her every session which she jumps on so it was like get a little scoring system in your head of like however many times you get on the ball 75% of them times you get on the ball you've got to pass forward forget the outcome yeah yeah to the point that like did it a couple of sessions and stuff and then I was like um, only occasionally with this group wasn't there all the time mm-hmm. to the point that like probably six weeks eight weeks down the line I dropped into another session. She came home. She was oh, like, last week I got this. The week before I got this. Can you give me another challenge tonight? And then you go, well, I've got you now. Yeah. Whereas, like I said, it, some people will go, oh, I'm going to do this intervention, this intervention, this intervention. And then suddenly it's, you've lost it. You never measure it. You never add value to it in terms of come back to it. Whereas I think, again, going back to like our environment, I think that's something we kind of stuck to. So again, you yes, you were very command. Yeah. But I think you were so consistent in terms of how you were, whether people liked that or didn't like it. Because again, there's a place for command, and I've I've gone full circle in my coaching practice where I'm like, 
players need just now. Yeah. Um, where I think whether that was an intervention or just a, a coaching style that was consistent and the players you could see the kind of gradual development in them. Yeah. I think I think we I think yeah we we complemented each other fairly well, but I've also gone full circle, probably the other way around. Yeah. Where I've learned to be silent a lot more. Let the practice design bring the topic be a bit more, I guess, quieter in terms of coaching in the breaks. And, and listen, this is stemmed from my own learning in terms of what I try and deliver um, within my, my, my day job now of, look, you know, I, I really see the value in what I've read or what I've watched and let's really give it a go. And, you know, I still check and chance. I still see massive value in direct instruction command when it's appropriate. Well, when it's appropriate depends on who I'm doing it with and at what point in time. And even with the command style, the command in terms of choice of language, tonality of language, I now begin to think about. So I can be commanding and really come across as quite, as you said, bullish. Yeah. And that comes from my biography. It comes from me being you know, a southerner. The accent helps in that sense. Yeah. But I've also learned that actually I can be command while being quite soft in terms of my tonality and my language. Um, and I, I, I think you get two different outcomes just from that. So the importance of tonality and language for me kind of has built that in. And whether I've done it now, or we're going to go full games-based approach, we're going to do loads of scenario work tonight, and do you know what? I'm only going to coach you in the breaks. Or, no, do you know what? We're going to do small-sided game, but I'm going to be quite instructive tonight. And I'm going to stick it on everyone as a collective. So you are going to hear me being quite bullish tonight on this. And I've, I guess I've, I've, I've just begun to, over the last maybe two or three years, really, in my coaching, really play with these things and then be very observant in terms of who reacts to what. And I'm conscious and comfortable at the same time of going, I know I'm not going to get it right with everybody in one, the time that we've got, because I don't have that much time with the players. You know, we're in twice a week, which is more than most, which is a privilege, but not as much as being in every day. Um, and comfortable enough that some people, you can try a host of things and they won't respond to it in your life. And they're, they're, the, they're the challenges and that's what you've got to go with. So I've been very comfortable, I guess, being on the grass, Variation of practice design, variation of, of my interventions in terms of you know, games-based, I tend to stand off. If we're doing more kind of skill-based stuff or, or games-based stuff, I might be in, in and around it. Um, they know that they're going to get silent time from me um, because I make a point of it. And I'm typically going, when I'm silent, you need to be incredibly loud. And I said, the more I'm silent, the, typically the happier I am. Because you, you're, doing, you're doing it. Yeah. You're smashing it. Um, if I'm silent and then following it up with a bit of chat, you know I'm buzzing because I don't have to stop the group. I don't have to stop, you know, doing it. And listen, I'm saying it as if it's all worked out smoothly. It definitely hasn't at times. And there's still people that I will certainly turn around and go, yeah, no, sticks it on people. <laughs> and, and I'm cool with that. I'm comfortable with that. Is, is there a player you got it wrong with? No. On reflection. But I'm not saying like name names or like no, a club or, but is there something where you, like, you look back and go, do you know what, like, probably had like a bit of a negative effect on their not their whole career because again it's yeah you can, you can flip it the other way and go players got to be adaptable they've got to learn different coaches and all that and have mental toughness but do you think you may be like I said going back to like because I I look back on myself at, at Burnley and go is there some players I could have pushed more because mm -hmm. I think I was very much a, a session up with it just go and the quality was there because again the, the quality of the players but then I think the tools I had in my previous job and probably my job now where I'm going 
I think I could have got a little bit more out of them. Yeah. Know, that's an ego thing or whatever. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll be honest. I think it's probably only again reflecting on it more recently <laughs> is I probably not realise that I really value defenders, and it's probably because I was a defender. I'm not the most creative person in the world in terms of attackers. I value it, but actually, I love defending. I've always loved defending as a yeah um, as as a player. Defend, I love defending as a as a coach. But could I have done more for some of those defenders in that defensive unit, especially hundred percent? Where, like you said, did it need a different type of push? Or actually, there was moments with one particular player, which was actually in the younger age group. That when I look back on it now, and I look at and I you know when you visualize their body language, they probably needed a hug. Yeah. They probably needed an arm around. And I got that wrong. Um, and it's not to say that you know I should have been really soft with them, but probably in that moment where I have been quite bullish, when actually neither bullish and listen, you're doing okay. Don't worry about it. You know we can work on this. Or you know let's let's see what it looks like in game. I could have done that a lot more. And I, and I think look that's part of it that I I really strive to be this more personable coach now, because I probably wasn't back then. And I think I think you were. I think I think you definitely you definitely were. I just think there was like uh, the initial getting to know Noel might have yeah I'm very offended much a few players. You know what I mean? Because you come I'm very in much like, like Marmite. I'm Marmite. <laughs> but, you, but you came in, it was like hundred mile an hour, and you're on yeah. on players. Whereas some players share, yeah, I love that. Some players, yeah. Whereas some players like no, but then after time, because cause again, you still had that personal side to you. It wasn't a case of yeah. I'm this session's done. You still talk, you still laugh and joke with players, but. Like, I know how I probably was as a kid. If someone did that with me, I'd probably then be standoffish if they then suddenly went and started joking around and be like, hold on a second, you've just been this. Yeah, yeah. That was probably my brain as a kid. Which, again, I'd go back to, like, like my career. I struggled at 17, 18 in terms of the whole command style I got. But then looking back now, it was a great thing for me in terms of, as a coach, now it gives me another tool to use. But at the time, I, I couldn't deal with it. Yeah. I had to be almost like left to my own devices. I couldn't play freely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like I de- definitely from your point of view, I'd say you were still personal. There was never like a oh he's over the top with it, but it was. I can stick it on people. When do you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and listen, and that's. Uh, I think we've 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 come on that full circle where I think it's just recognizing when it's needed, and I probably do that better now. Yeah. Not perfect, and that's where you know we continue to. But again, learn. this is something I spoke about loads, and I've done it like even with like the coach help stuff where I spoke to coaches and gone like you do your session plan, but do you plan for how you're going to be in the session, and have you got the ability to deliver them things? Because um, I remember like we in another job where we've always like a blank canvas as an academy, and it was like right, we're gonna we're gonna deliver this pre season, but this is how we're gonna deliver it, and almost like you said picking apart if you've got a couple more staff how do you how do you plan for the staff are we all are we all going after every place they are someone dropping in subtle things not just the typical you take the in possession team I take the out possession team or you be good cop I be bad cop it's got to be, I think it's got to be more a lot more detailed than yeah, that in of terms of, and, the t- and again it comes back to time and stuff but I think you've got to really kind of go, in, go to that level to get it get it kind of where you want it and it, and it comes back to that do you know who's in front of you? Do you know the players that are in front of you? But also, do you know your staff? Because obviously you mentioned, you know, actually, you know, before the podcast started, right, actually, part of my learning is that I want to 
want to be able to develop and, and kind of work with the staff that I work with. And yeah. Actually, can I'm going to take this type of approach for this week's worth of training and this kind of periodization point. I need you to be like this. And you might say that to somebody who, yeah, you know, I see the qualities in you, so I want you to be a lot more personal. I want you to kind of get in and amongst the group during the stretches and I want you to kind of yeah. start delving in. I'm going to be standoffish this week because I need to see it, the bigger picture stuff, whatever it might be. And I think that's part of being a coach. I think we do get hung up sometimes on on the pitch and intervention and practice. There's more part of that is what's everybody's role. Yeah. And that's whether it's a coach, whether we see that as more manager, well, more often than not, we're intertwined in multiple roles simultaneously. Yeah. And, I, and I think we've got to value that stuff that, you know, your biggest contribution for a player in that potential week is that you say absolutely nothing at all, but you know that there's three or four others in your in your kind of coaching cohort that are going to deliver that for you. Yeah. That that might have come from your planning and your decision to be standoffish that week. Um, I think there's a huge bit there, again, of like, again, whether you're privileged or not to have support staff around you, but yeah. like probably more the full-time academy about stuff. If you've got an SNC or a physio or a psychologist or an analyst, how do you use them in your session? Yeah. And again... Another method of using the past around getting to know players was, remember getting a new under eighteen squad, which was brand new, weren't the kids that come through an academy. It was like you get them at day one, yeah. and there were six staff, and we allocated ourselves two players a week. So you had Monday to Monday to get to know that player. Yeah. Monday you reported back, so then the other five staff had done it. So suddenly you know about twelve of the players. Yeah. We did that for six months on a rotation in terms of going getting to see different speak to different players. And again, like, I was the lead coach at the time, which you get certain things, but, like, the physio would find out so much more for you. Of course, yeah. Yeah. And then you start building those pictures, and you start having those conversations. Again, the confidential stuff was, was kept, and like that kind of stuff. But in terms of, you suddenly know something about someone's brother, yeah. and you could drop that in a review meeting, because five weeks ago you'd heard that your S&C had found out something that the brother was going through a divorce or had a certain job or whatever and you could drop them suddenly the player's like oh, I don't know about me yeah. and again it comes back to this thing like we said at the start we told us like what's YDP and what's it going to look like but it, it comes down to knowing people doesn't it? it listen I've always said it from the start these are human beings before they're players and they will be human beings well after they are players a player is just a particular role that they hopefully choose to take up because they love what they do in that sport but they are still a learner and a student during the day in an education setting there still might be you know they're a son or they're a daughter in terms of obviously the women's game which is becoming more prevalent which is fantastic there's still a you know uh, a niece a nephew you know they're all these things simultaneously and if we're only ever concentrating fully on the player we might lose out on recognising what other qualities they they have and they possess yeah. and unless you know as much as you possibly can about that person, how can you possibly make a judgment purely on a performance on a pitch? Because that person, as you said, you know, if you don't know fully, they might do so well technically, tactically, they're there, they get to 18s, and it's so psychologically different, because all of a sudden, it's their full-time role. They are full-time scholars. That's their job. To go from school kid to full-time job, it's hard, you know, 
So again, so again, we talk about preparing for like yeah, the title of like this this episode, but preparing from YDP to PDP. Yeah. And we do the day release program, mm. so they're going for a day. We school the training. Yeah. If a player doesn't do well at that in that day release program at fifteen or sixteen, that at times can have almost like a negative impact on the decision making process with that player. Yeah. Always going, oh, he's not ready, or she's not ready. And then vice versa in terms of how do we do we actually even review that process? Yeah. Or is it just oh we get them all in on a Thursday, they go home, again we get them all in next Thursday, go home when your school are coming. Yeah. But is there again something we could have in place which is well he or she getting it or they need a little bit more time this or they don't need this yet or they need more of this. And what what parts of the day are they struggling? Yeah. Because again, the, the, the top the top end player in that in that fifteen sixteen group, well, oh, we want to get him for three days day release, yeah. and almost sack off the school program. But yeah. like, how do we know what's right for each individual at, at each moment in time? Yeah, and you're only going to know that by who they are as people, right? How they get, you know, you you often find that a lot of them struggle. You know, they might struggle day release. They might do really well in training, but terrible in the education. Or if you can convince them that education is really important and actually which you use some of the education for the football it generally helps it might be that they freeze because the environment's different that all of a sudden they're seeing full-time first team staff there and psychologically so, so uh, socially they might not be ready because they're quite might be quite introverted quite shy and all of a sudden they're around adults beyond those who they're traditionally with and they have different expectations. They don't know their personalities. That's huge for a, for a young person. But again, huge. But again, that that can again. So like your your diamond in the rough, your best players potentially coming through, could have a bad experience with the first team manager or the twenty threes coach by going up and mm. he's a bit shy. I'm not having him. Yeah, and that could be the end of the, the kid's almost pathway. Yeah. Where's where's the where's the bit in place that like because the next question is like, who should be involved in this process? Mm. But how do we how do we build that to go well this is what the kids like now you we need to have an understanding that still be ready in three four five years not now yeah and for, and for whose gain you know the, the nature of um football in its entirety it, it generally is first team managers change on a regular basis the the in, in uh installment of now kind of football directors to bring some form of consistency is there but it's not cascaded throughout um, which means that you know I guess what you might associate with board members you know they need to be fairly strong in appreciating who these players are in terms of development and understanding which they always don't and again I don't say that in a negative way I say that in a way of we as coaches have also got to appreciate that they have really tough jobs with really tough decisions that we won't know about and actually if we can come to some sort of middle ground where you go look we value that you've got to make decisions at certain points can you at least appreciate that we think that there might be somebody who you're wanting to discard in the next 12 months who we think in three years time might be there I think there has to be that open dialogue Yeah. and I, ha- I think it has to involve as many people as possible rather than three or four and when I say as many you already alluded to it nutritionists the physio strength conditioning age group coaches academy manager 18s coach, 23s coach, you know, their, their six just spilled off straight off. I think they can be more. 
and I think the more insight you get, the more well-rounded picture you're likely to have, then you can make what I would call an informed decision. I'm not saying decisions that are made now are not informed. They are. But it's typically within the remit of who who's the standout player? What does it look like for a first team? Does he does he fit the bill as it currently stands? Rather than the uncertainty of three years' time. Is is that player going to be of some value? Is there still that potential? And I think we get caught up sometimes in the eventual thing is do they play for the first team? They might not play for the first team. But they might make you money. Because let's not forget that that's still part of the game. And that's a really crap part of the game. Because you have to then see them in certain lights as assets. But that is the reality. That is the reality. You look at some of the top Premier League sides. So Man City, you know, sell players that have never made an appearance in the first team. Yeah. Make millions. Up here. Yeah. Man United do the same. Chelsea have kind of almost built a model on it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Academy graduates, you know. But that still serves them to go and have a career. And I think clubs have, I think by giving them that time, continuing to expose them to different people in different environments and different times, I just think promotes that potential to be seen a little bit later down the line rather than being very quick to discard. And I get why we do it. We've seen it recently, right, in this, what I call the race to the bottom. Yeah. All of a sudden, the last three or four years, under fives. You know, development centres, four-year-olds. And you think, really? <laughs> like, really? They're not going to make it. What? <laughs> they can't even walk in a straight line. They're still learning. <laughs> you know, what are you telling me? And, and that's, I find that hilarious. And by the way, I'm part of that system. You're part of that system. Yeah. We're in it. That's yeah. the culture. But if we're so willing and, I guess, relentless in this race to the bottom, if we're wanting to, you know, elongate the bottom, why can't we just elongate the top and just provide a much wider window rather than race to the bottom but shorten the gap at the top? 14 to 50, I'm not doing it at 14. Why? Oh, we've had them since they were six. So, why not have them from four and keep them until they're 21? Yeah. Work with them for, you know, 17 years as opposed to 11. What's the problem? And, you know, I think that's... Sometimes we get too hung up on... I always associate it with the pendulum swing. We go from, you know, recognising that... People often forget, don't they, that, you know, EGLP, I think, has been an, uh, overall a really positive influence. But let's not forget that players were being developed pre-EGLP. You know, you're going to go look at like, someone like West Ham, you know, Ferdinand, Joe Cole, Defoe, Lampard, you know, the likes of them doing other players and yeah. clubs to service. But they're the ones that, I guess, in my lifetime spring to mind. Yeah. You know, in, even before that, well, they were given time. They were given exposure, just like we're trying to do now. So not much has changed, except that we're trying to make decisions in a more money-orientated environment. There's more pressures, so therefore we think that giving them less time is better, which I don't understand. It, it, it baffles me a little bit. And they will go, yeah, but we've invested in these amount of coaches and we've got more full-time staff and we've got more facility, we've got more resource. And you go, brilliant. Give them more time then. It comes back as well, what you said about that intervention and stuff and coaching practice of if you've got kids from 5 to 14 or 5 to 18 or 5 to 21, surely if the coaching you've got in place and is elite and top end, mm. that player's got to be somewhere nearby, yeah. nearby getting being a first team player. If they've got, they're coming with some level of ability, they've been identified as a 5, 6 year old, mm. yes, things can go on in terms of, but like, surely, 
there's got to be a question around that as well. Well, if, you, if you're keeping them for that long, yeah, you must have seen something at some point in that decade yeah. that goes, maybe I can just give them a little bit longer. But then on the flip side, I think everyone's kind of seen this happen before. Like, I think the longer you have a, a player in the building, the more faults you then suddenly find in that. Because it's interesting that I think you've got to have fresh eyes on a group mm. or a player every now and again because... I think you start because I've done it myself where you go oh, like doesn't do this doesn't do this doesn't do this you get a new player on trial oh he's amazing at this and you think well that kid already does this but it's just because I see it all the time I'm almost bored of it yeah I think that's a real kind of interesting way to look at it as well yeah and I think there's there's that need and there's that argument isn't there is do you stay with your age groups and for how long because like I say you do want to spend enough time with them that you build those relationships I think you've also got to have a process in mind that when you know that you are moving to another age group and somebody else is coming in that that stuff is documented the nuances are documented of those relationships that the crossover isn't bang lose now done Noel's now in well actually I'm going to spend time with you for the last three months and get to know the group on the periphery let you lead me stand behind shadow it and then drip feed that so that the crossover is a bit more seamless yeah um because then whatever I might read or watch or observe or talk to you about in terms of what the nuances of these different players, I get to see in practice as well. And I get to build on those fresh eyes. And it's that thing of, for us as coaches, not going, oh, so-and-so is great, but you know what? That's his fault, that's her fault, that's her fault. It's then removing that dialogue. It's, it's more about the personal stuff. It's not about what you see as a coach, because actually that's not going to be your job for the next 12 months. That's going to be mine. And that's, I think part of our development as coaches is going let me tell you about so and so but I don't want to say that this is the type of player that they are I think we've got to be comfortable removing that dialogue sometimes because yeah. without that you always and you see it don't you, you know how many times now oh so, so and so players associated with this type of player they're that type of player and the academy manager knows it head of coaching knows it lead phase knows it and you think so everyone's already made up their mind Everyone's already made up their mind because it's just a running dialogue. And you're just like, are we then missing something? Are we missing a potential fresh eyes? Because academies are cultures. And cultures develop a, a general discourse. Yeah. And if everyone aligns to that discourse, more often than not a decision has been made on the player. And that's where we miss out. I think that's where we've got to afford that opportunity to check and challenge, which, by the way, some people do, and a lot of people do in the system, brilliantly. But I don't think it's the norm. I don't think it's that conversation that goes, yeah, so-and-so wasn't very good. I also think I've spent a lot of time doing that, being very negative rather than going, we hear the terminology, don't we? Let's build on our strength, or what's their super strength? And I think that's the right way to go. We all have faults. We have faults as human beings. We're sat here tonight. We have faults as people. I don't need my missus or your missus telling us what our faults are. They still do, don't they? Yeah. But, but, but they don't. You know, they, they love us unconditionally because of maybe the things that we bring to their lives. Well, why aren't we seeing players in the same light? Great way of putting it. Why aren't they? They are in the building for a reason. Let's build on that reason for why they are here. Do you know what I mean? We, we can't make... And we use a traditional example, don't we, this, the last two decades of would you ever encourage Messi to, you know relinquish his left foot and become both footed no. you know and, but we I still although we might say it in general discourse we still do come on both feet why 
Why? If they're if they're if their quality and their quality comes from being one sided and being you know unbelievably athletic, for example, or being unbelievably skillful, why do we need that skillful player to all of a sudden become relentless in terms of work rate off the ball? I'm not saying that they automatically should then become lazy, but why should we hold up that work rate out of possession in the same regard as being technically gifted or tactically creative? And I, although I think there's general dialogue within that, I still don't think we do that brilliantly in practice. I I'm, I say we collect, you know, I'm not saying it as a royal we collectively because there are some people that do it really well. I just don't see it stretch more broadly. Yeah. Um, but just like just the kind of last topic I wanted to go over with you was yeah. Again, put you really on the spot around like fifteen or sixteen. Mm. How do we measure it? So again, like I'm not saying you get a sporting director or an academy manager job somewhere, but you, how do we how do we know that kid progressed at fifteens? How do we know they've then progressed through sixteens? And when someone like the the under eighteen boss is like, right, who's ready? Mm. Well, we've got this evidence or this in place. Is there anything? Yeah, I I think obviously what what the EPPB did bring together. <laughs> was uh, a philosophy of sorts that brought some form of consistency that then related to what we would associate with competency. And that competency was generally aligned to position-specific roles, responsibilities. I think that's a useful starting point yeah. within that. I still think it needs to be more nuanced uh, and flexible. So... You know, you might you you'll see on the writing on the walls of clubs, or you see within their documentation that they'll have you know psychological traits, uh, sociological traits. You know, pride is important. You know, self confidence is really key, and you go brilliant. But I think there has to be an air of flexibility within what self confidence looks like in different people. Like say we were with, uh, and you know, you know the exact player that I'm talking about that was unbelievably confident. You would never know it by looking at that person, that kid's face, for two years. <laughs> You'd never know it. But they had unbelievable self-confidence in what they did at training and in games. And I think that's where it comes back to almost extending that profile of discussions, dialogue. We're in a technological world now where there's no reason why we can't voice note and add it to a kid's file. Yeah. Yeah. There's no reason why we can't do that. And those voice notes complement the clippings that come from the analysis. That comes from, if you've got sports sites, what choice of psych profiling they, they then do. And then it's about interrogating that. Well, what aligns? What are we beginning to see? And I think having that then goes, okay, how do we then determine how we're going to coach? And is there a change? And then that's on us. That's our pressure. And I think it should be put back on us. So, well, this is the profile that we've built. This is, you know, we've given some audio stuff, we've had conversations, you know, this, a focus group, what we're doing now in terms of a podcast, but why can't we have four people around the mic and really talking about these players? This is the thing, this is where I feel is that at times, if a, if a first team gets relegated, the manager gets sacked, if a first team don't get in the playoffs, mm. the recruitment, staff gets sacked, mm. if you've got a lot of injuries in the season, the physio's out the door, these players aren't fit enough, s and has gone, but I feel like where does the accountability like start with coaching in mm. terms of, well, 
So once it's down and you go, no, Lewis, like, you've not developed this player over 12 months. Why? I've never been in a, a, a conversation where I've been questioned on that. I'll, I'll have my six-week or 12-week review, which is around your coaching practice. Or that, but then you think, well, it should it go a little bit deeper than that? Yeah, like I said, I think it is our responsibility. I think we should be held accountable um, as as coaches, as a collective, because we are, well, ultimately we're employed. We we earn money, or within the industry, it's not a great deal, but we're privileged, more than most, to earn money, to support players. And I think we do often get caught up in a culture where we just turn up at times. We do. And we've all been there. But I think we need to be held as accountable as you said sporting directors have got to go because you know the, the relationship between first team 21s but it's not working and it's on field performances are terrible strength conditioning there's multiple injuries throughout strength conditioning you're, you're gone etc etc and I do think that's what it is and I think that's where when you're talking about how do we measure I think it's us being more creative with how we present what we observe what we see what we do to put forward a case for a player and it's only when we put more stuff in front of people who are ultimately decision makers, which, although at times you know we, we don't like it, there does have to be a point. But I think it's our responsibility to present as many, probably what I would associate as case studies. These, these kids within this particular environment, this context, they are individual cases. And although it's a team game, we're driving individuals to strive to become as best as they possibly can. Well, if you align that to, you know, your file as, a, as an employee, well, you have your reviews, you have your what your strengths, you have your what your things, and I think we need to continue to build those case studies in more creative ways from more departments that gives a far more, it's never going to be complete, but a more complete picture of that kid at that time. I think then we need to be asked more challenging questions as coaches, in, uh, as coaches in terms of... This is what I think the player can now do in the next 12 months. And that might be the challenge for the next coach. Or, Lou, you're going to be given this group again for the next year. You need to hit the targets that you now set for the next 12 months. And it has to look like this. And I, and I would expect people to challenge you or challenge me or challenge any coach to go, it needs to be shown in these, in these domains or in these areas. I.e., we need to see in training that they're leading their groups. Or actually in games, they need to be seen to be getting on the ball running games a lot more than what they do. And actually the evidence is going to come from clippings now. The evidence is going to come from actually the scoreline. Actually the evidence is going to come from they they told you to stay out of the changing room. Whatever it might be, I think yeah. we're able to build more nuanced competencies related to these players as individuals. It's still within a framework because it has to meet each will be, you know, demands to at the point. But they offer some degree of flexibility. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's what it is. I think what we've got is a framework. Um, I think because of that framework, we're still allowed to have some form of freedom. And I don't think we use the freedom as well. I think it's stick to the plan, stick to the framework, go through the framework. And you're like, well, the framework is just a framework. You know, how do we offer some freedom? How do we get to know these, these people a little bit more? Um, even insights from parents and, and the relationship with parents. That's something I really value now. Tell me about your son or daughter, but don't tell me all the wonderful things because you think is what I want to hear. Tell me the things that get on your nerves. And I'll use a recent example. So, And it was with a much younger age group that a player used to come in 
And I just began to notice that they were always messy on the sideline. Trainers flinged off. Water bottle was like at one end of the pitch and the trainers were at the other. And you think, what are you doing? And I just asked one question uh, 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 <laughs> to the mum. I was like, does so-and-so clean their room when they're at home? No, no, no. I do it. I'm like, and what's their room like? And it's like, it's an absolute tip. Okay. Come here. From now on, you clean your own room. What? You clean your own room. Your mum's not doing it anymore. Okay, 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 okay. All of a sudden, they clean their own room and they're really good at it. And all, and all of a sudden, they were really nice and neat when they came to training. And they became quite a stickler for other people to be nice and neat at training. And he developed some leadership skills to go, no, 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 let's get organised. And it took kind of eight, nine months. But all of a sudden, you're like, are you still cleaning your room? And as you said, it's been consistent. Yeah. Am I going to have to shout up to your mum in the gantry? <laughs> no, no, I have, I have, I have, I have. And you use it as not a serious thing. You turn it into a bit of a joke. But again, you can be used as that real good role model. It's yeah. like, I know myself, like, my dad used to say certain things to me in the car on the way home, like, about my performance. I'd be like, shut up, dad. Yeah. But then the coach said exactly the same thing and you take it on board because you like, almost respect your coach. So it's using that as well in yeah. a really good way. And, and, and I've used it as a flip thing of, look, you know, if so-and-so is messy at home, it just leads to other things. I've seen it in different contexts. I've seen it in education, you know, and I've always said there's got to be a real consistency from home to school to football or whatever wider sport you're in. There has to be some consistent boundaries. So there's an expectation that you come in and be polite, right? But that expectation doesn't end as soon as you leave the, the training ground. It's extended to parents. And it's extended to education. So I had the rule of if you had detention and it was detention because you were being disrespectful, you would not be allowed to train. And I made that very clear with my boss because they have to understand that football for them is a privilege that they love doing. But also education is also a privilege that a lot of people don't have the luxury of. And that actually, if you disregard those two, you're typically going to be disrespect. People can be disrespected in their own home. That, that, boils on me and it boils on me because I'm a parent myself yeah and so I've taken elements of being a parent and going no no look I'm, I'm here to help because and you know it's like some parents they they bust themselves to get to training you know they give up their evenings they give up their weekends so you know how do we nurture the parents and get their inside and go look they have been struggling at school because of this and we need that information we need that information. Why? Oh, they broke up with a girlfriend or she broke up with a boyfriend. I get it. I get it. That's why they're kicking off in training. That's why they're sacking it off. That's why they're not doing the running. We might not ever know that. So we need the parents' insight and we need to we need to get the parents to value that we're not trying to find out the horrible stuff because it's a reason to get red. Actually, it's how we can support you and how we can align home education and football. Um, and, and, you know, Steve Salas speaks about that, doesn't he? Um, you know, more recently he's written his book and he's been on these podcasts and stuff. And I, I, I guess being an educator more traditionally, coming from a teaching background, I see that that connection yeah. being really, really valuable. So why can't a parent's conversation come into the frame? Why can't it? Why can't it be part of the decision-making process? Rather than, at times I often feel it's just a, I don't want to say paying lip service, but I don't think it's taken as seriously as what it is because often we underestimate how influential the parents are in a positive manner. 
and how much they sacrifice. So I, you know, you talk about I got my younger ones, you know, to make sure that they said thank you to their mum or dad, because I wanted them to understand sacrifice and I wanted them to understand gratitude. Because you know, their mums and dads would have loved to be on this pitch tonight, but they've got to sit up on the chairs, and you get to run around and have a great time. And I'm not saying that you need to pay back for everything. But maybe just give your dad a high five. Maybe give your mum a hug and say, oh, thanks for bringing me today. And I said, you know, that's going to build that, form that relationship as parents or guardians. And then they're going to feel that connection and they're going to love that connection. And they're more likely to do that with their friends and they're more likely to do that in school and they're more likely to come to football and they're more likely to develop those nurturing relationships with their teammates and with their coaches. Well, that's only going to have a positive impact. Um, and I think you carry that through you create, in a traditional sense, very resilient, mentally strong young men and young women who are more likely to be able to deal with that competitiveness, deal with that kind of intensity, deal with the, the, the daily demand. But it's got to, you're only going to get that through multiple perspectives on a really creative level to build these case studies as best as you can. And as I said previously, it does not mean that by doing all of this, every player ends up playing in the Premier League. But even if they don't, you're probably developing a really good person. And I think there's just as much pride in that as there is someone making their Premier League appearance. Brilliant. Cheers, Noel. We'll finish on that. Thanks, Luke. Thanks. <laughs> no, appreciate it. Cheers, mate.